We chose for our exhortation this morning the, the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, which really begins a little further back. If you just come over to Daniel chapter 9, we find here it's the end of the time, really, of the, the uh, sojourn of Israel in the land of Babylon. And in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel had realized by prophetic events that the time had come for the exiles to return. So we read there in verse 1, it was in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the seed of the Medes, which was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, that I, Daniel, he says, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of Yahweh that came to Jeremiah, prophet, that he should accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And so what does he do? He sets his face unto Yahweh Elohim to seek by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So Daniel lived in a time very similar to ours. The prophetic word of the prophets indicated that the time of the restoration had come. And that's exactly the time and period that we live in. We know that we are after the times of the Gentiles have expired. Judah and Jerusalem are back in Israeli hands, and we wait the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing by books that those times of the Gentiles have expired. And so his response was to set his face and to seek by prayer and supplication. And after this, of course, as we keep reading, if you uh, consider this, Daniel is visited by the angel Gabriel, and he gave him understanding that the time appointed was long. Now, we looked at this the other day in a public lecture in, in Acts chapter 3 and at verse 19, where Peter told the, the, the congregation that was there that they were to repent and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the time of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, and whom the heaven must receive until the time of the restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. And that, of course, is the time period that we now live in. And so we need to grab a hold of the excitement and the urgency of the time in which we live, very much like Daniel did, and set our, fair, our hearts and our minds by prayer and supplication as we go about our daily lives, our jobs, our school, and whatever else it might be, recognizing that we are literally living on the knife's edge of the kingdom. Now come, if you would, back to Ezra, where the story begins of these exiles who return. So Daniel basically has been praying to God and seeking um, the, the good favor of God over the people. And we find the result of that in Exodus, or Ezra sorry, chapter 1 and verse 1. It's the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. The word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, so it's fulfillment of prophecy, Yahweh stirs up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, and he makes this decree throughout all the kingdom. And he says there, Yahweh God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth and have charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, to build the house of Yahweh, God of Israel. He is the God which is in Jerusalem. And whoso remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold and with goods and beasts beside the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. So it's very much like today. 
It's free will. He didn't command all the Jews to leave Babylon and to go back. He told them it's whoever wants to go. And that's the same thing with us. God doesn't drag us kicking and screaming all the way to the kingdom. He invites us, and that's the word kaleo, when we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he says many are called and few are chosen. Well, the chosen are those who are faithful to the call. They respond to that call. And so that's why we don't baptize babies. We don't turn around and, and sort of like claim them in the name, so to speak, of, of the Christadelphians. It's purely up to every single one of us. Do we want to go to the kingdom or not? And so we find there in verse 5, we have a group of people. Then rose up the chief of the fathers of Judah and Benjamin and of the priests and the Levites with all them whose God or whose spirit God raised to go up to build the house of Yahweh, which is in Jerusalem. And all they that were about them strengthened their hands with vessels of silver and gold, with goods and with beasts and with precious things, beside all that was willingly offered. So they were raised up. The word is the idea of being roused, to be awakened, to be incited, to be stirred up. And that was the spirit of these people. And we find if we come over to chapter 3 of Ezra, as we read in Nehemiah, um, in our reading there, the seventh month was come, all the children of Israel that were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. So here we have this first aliyah, the first going up to Jerusalem, and we find that the people there are as one. They are one in purpose together. And so, of course, we have the man of one in the book of Revelation. We have the man of one in the book of Daniel, that picture of the ecclesia in perfection, God manifestation, the Lord Jesus Christ's body all assembled together. And that's what we have here. But of course, as there always is, there was a, a bunch of adversaries. So we see that in chapter 4, verse 1, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto Yahweh, the, uh, the God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and the chief of the fathers and said unto them, let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher which brought us hither. So they feigned interest in the work so that they could destroy the work. And we think of that in the, the whole list out of the New Testament, the passages we have there. We won't look it up, but in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, he talks about the, the end of the commandment is love out of a pure heart, of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned from which some, having swerved, have turned aside to vain jangling. So there can be feigned faith, and there can be real faith. Well, these men here were feigning a belief, feigning an interest, but their goal was to undermine the work. And we find that in verse 4, the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, troubled them in their building, and hired counselors there to frustrate them. So when you look at this idea of weakening, it means to sink down, to let drop, to dishearten them. And they troubled them. The idea is to disturb or to terrify, to make them anxious or nervous. And they frustrated them, which basically means to make ineffectual by splitting up, by cracking, or by dividing. So that's, of course, the, the method of the Jesuits, right? Divide and conquer. So that's what they were trying to do here, is frustrate the work that was taking place. 
Now, this is actually synonymous with the time of Esther. Uh, the great proclamation of Cyrus is frustrated here, and it goes on into the reign of Darius. So when we look at this, we, we are dealing with the time of Haggai that we were looking at the other day. If you just come over to chapter 5, during this time of frustration, God spoke to Israel through the prophets to remind them that they had to be about his business. So we find in chapter 5, and this is where Haggai fits into the record, then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo, both of these are at this point in time, prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, and they begin to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. With them were the prophets of God helping them. So this is where Haggai plugs in. So let's go back over to Haggai that we looked at the other day in our class together. And um, we'll just consider here, just reinsert the actual uh, section that we looked at in Haggai into the context here of where they actually were. I find Haggai is kind of like Jonah. He's always running away on me. There we go. Okay, so Haggai chapter 1 and verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh uh, came the word of Yahweh by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. So this is where this all plugs in. The son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua the son of Josedek the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh Yahweh of hosts, saying, This people say the time is not come, the time that Yahweh's house should be built. And so when we looked at that the other day, we were talking about the fact that, you know, we can get tied up in our own sealed houses, paneled, decorated. But the context of this is great tribulation in Israel. There were some serious problems going on, and it's not as though that their focus on their own stuff didn't have some merit. It did have some merit, but God's point is that regardless of the adversaries, you have to seek me first. So consider your ways, he goes on to say. And we looked at how basically they, they were struggling, struggling with those issues. You drink, but you don't have enough drink. You eat, but you don't have enough. You clothe you, but you're never warm. So eating and drinking and being clothed, the very issues of, 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 um, of Matthew are brought right in here. So they had context and reason in a way to be not building the temple in their own fleshly thinking, um, there, was a, there was an excuse, but God tells them, look, it's not an excuse. You need to get on, and you need to be about the work rather than your own domestic business. And, of course, God pointed out that he would frustrate their own desires if they didn't put him first. So in Haggai then, verse 14, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the, the, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit, all the remnant of the people. And they came and they did the, the work in the house of Yahweh their God in the four and twentieth day in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So that's the picture that we have. Now come over to Zechariah because we have the same thing here with Zechariah. This is where the prophet Zechariah also snaps into the record. It's in the eighth month, verse 1 of chapter 1, in the second year of Darius came the word of Yahweh to Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, Yahweh hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say unto you, uh, say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, Turn you to me, saith Yahweh of hosts, and I will turn to you, saith Yahweh of hosts. 
So this is the key. And this is what we will find in our lives. If we turn to God, he will turn to us. And God doesn't blame the nations around them who are working against the Jews. He puts the onus on the Jews to be about his business, regardless of what the world was doing. They had been persecuted, but that was no excuse. So if you just keep your finger here and just pop over to James, this is the same principle that James draws down on. It's almost like a quote coming right from here in James chapter 4, where we read there in verse 7, um, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. So sometimes we can use the excuses of our lives not to serve our God. But God tells us here, if we draw nigh to him, he will draw nigh to us. Resist the devil, the diabolos, the false accuser. They were being falsely accused back in the time of Ezra and of Nehemiah. And so in response to this, they take great efforts to, to get back at the work. So back in Ezra chapter 5 and at verse 3, we find here that there was more opposition coming their way. Legal measures are now taken to stop the work. At the same time came to them Tatnai, the governor, on this side of the river, and Shether, Boznai, uh, and, and their companions, and said unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we unto them after this manner, and they, they basically, What are the names of the men that make this building? But the eyes of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, and they could not cause them to cease till the matter was, came to Darius, and then they returned answer by letter concerning the matter. So that's the beauty of this, is that the, the nations around couldn't cause them to cease. They, they continued on in the work. And yes, there was momentary frustrations in all of this, but they kept about their father's business. And if you come back to Zechariah in chapter 4, we find here again, uh, plugging into the same record, some of the events that were going on. In Zechariah 4, verse 6, he answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of Yahweh unto Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith Yahweh of hosts. So it's not by your might, not by your power, Zechariah, or Zerubbabel, but by the power of the Spirit of God, saith Yahweh of hosts. Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt be a plain. He shall bring forth the headstone thereof with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of, of this house. His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that Yahweh of hosts has sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel with those seven. They are the eyes of Yahweh which run to and fro throughout the whole earth. And brothers and sisters and young people, we can sometimes feel that we live in the day of small things. We can look back to Uncle Purse's days and lectures and town halls and all this, this great hubbub of activity and so on and think, well, it's just not like that anymore today. Well, it wasn't like that in Ezra and Nehemiah's day. So they got on about getting a restoration going on. And that's what we have to do. We can't look to the past and say, oh, you know, the days of old, weren't they wonderful and marvelous? 
Yes, they were. But what are we doing today? And if you think about this, what has what he told here? Um, you know, thou shalt say to this mountain, you know, it's going to become a plain. Well, think about that. You have to look it up. But Matthew 17, 20, Jesus said to the disciples, because of your unbelief, you couldn't do this miracle. But I say unto you, if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, remove hence to yonder place, and it shall remove. Nothing shall be impossible to you. And the mountain he's referring to is the Roman Empire. And that Roman Empire would be cast into the sea. And we read about that in the seals, the conquering and the conqueror that goes out, the man with the bow at the beginning of the seals of Revelation that would end up in the fall of the pagan Roman Empire. It would be cast out of heaven in, Roman chapter, in Revelation chapter 12 based on the work of the preaching efforts of the apostles and prophets. Now, they might have thought in the first century, you know, think of Trajan and Pliny and their letters and the persecutions the saints were receiving, that this was impossible. But they went out there and they spoke, and as the apostles, they said, the whole world is turned upside down. And it was a revolution that spread like wildfire. At a time, though, when there were indeed many adversaries. And so back in Ezra chapter 6, we find here that there's a, there's a similar situation as there was in the first century. In Ezra chapter 6, this great debate is going on in, in verse 1. Darius the king made a decree and the search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And they found at Akamitha in the palace where is in the province of the Medes a roll. And here's the, the record. It's all written out in the first year of Cyrus. They were to go up and to build this. And so the end of the frustration came along. So in verse 7, they, they put their, their hearts and their minds together, and they say, let, us, let the work of this house of God alone um, is, the, is the decree there. Let the governors of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build the house of God in his place. So this is the king making sure that this is going to take place. And not only that, but their adversaries had to fund it. Forthwith expenses must be given unto these men that they be not hindered. So not only were they to not frustrate them, they now had to fund the venture, which is amazing when you think about that. And you think of the Apostle Paul talking in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. He says, you know, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door and effectual is opened unto me. Ah, but there are many adversaries. And that's always the way it is in the work of the truth. There are always things that are going to happen that are going to be in our way to prove us whether we will walk in the way of God or no. So in verse 15 of chapter 6, the house is finished, and it's in the, the, uh, the third day of the month, Adar, which was the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. So they finish the house, and it's a time of great joy. If we look here in, in verse 21, the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, and all such as had separated themselves from the filthiness of the nations of the land, and what were they doing? Seeking Yahweh their God, they did eat and they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. Now that's a noun. And the Yahweh made them joyful. That's a verb using the same word. And turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So they were seeking Yahweh. And what that requires is holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. 
It requires of us, if we want to seek our God, to make our lives separated from the filthiness of the world and dedicate ourselves unto our God. And this will bring great joy. He made them joyful. And the word simcha there literally means joy, mirth, gladness, pleasure, a happy or a glad result. Because they had sought God first, he prospered their work. Let's just come, if you would, quickly. Keep your finger here in Ezra, because we're coming right back. But to the fifth psalm, because we, we pick up some of the sentiment of the psalmist here and, and of the events that have been going on um, with Ezra and, and later on Nehemiah. Verse 11, let all those, of Psalm 5 that is, let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee, for thou, Yahweh, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. There's that Magdan again, or Magdan, uh, this idea of the, the shield of Yahweh being around them. So they put their trust in him, and so that brings about rejoicing. And they can j shout for joy because God defended them. It wasn't their strength. It wasn't their power. It wasn't their might. It was them engaging in the work of Yahweh and consequently him working with them. Now that's the backdrop. That's even before Ezra shows up on the scene. So that's Zerubbabel and Joshua. And in chapter 7, Ezra now shows up on the scene. And we find him there um, after these things in, in Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Seraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, he comes up now. And in verse 6, Ezra went up from Babylon, and he was a ready scribe in the law of Moses, which Yahweh, God of Israel, had given him. And the king granted him all his request, according to the hand of Yahweh his God upon him. So he comes up to this drama uh, of building the temple after the prophets in the seventh year of Artaxerxes in verse 8. And it took him four months to get there. So we sometimes complain about the trip from Canada over to, you know, Australia, 33 or 40 hours or whatever it is. Um, and here we have four months on foot. You know, the first day of the first month began he to go up from Babylon, and the first day of the fifth month came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. So we have no complaints, really, when it comes to this. You know, here's a, a foot journey. You're going to walk this whole distance on foot. And so we find Ezra here in verse 10, he had prepared his heart to do what? To seek the law of Yahweh and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So he had prepared. The word there, kun, is the idea to be firm, to establish, to fix securely, to direct, to write. It's like we were looking at that word circumspect. He made a conscious effort. This is what I'm going to do with my life. This is who I'm going to be. And that's what we've got to do, especially young people. We've got to prepare our hearts, be firm and stable in our thinking, decide this is what we're going to do. And he prepared his heart to do what? To seek Yahweh. And that's that word deresh, to resort to, to inquire of. It literally means in the Hebrew to beat a path to. And you can ask yourself the question, what is the path between you and the ecclesia? Is it beaten down? Is it like worn flat because you take it as often as you can? 
Or is it perhaps a little overgrown with weeds and sometimes you can't quite see it? How about your Bible? Is it worn? Is it sort of like needing a little repair because you keep on leaping through it? Or is it all nice and crisp, not got a mark in it, never been touched? You know, we need to get into our Bibles, wear them out, get our hands in there, write our notes in there, understand what God's will is. But Ezra was the best of all the teachers because what he does is he prepares his heart to seek the law of Yahweh, find out God, what God wants, and then he does it. And that's the word asar, to work, to fashion, to squeeze, to make, to accomplish. So find out what God wants, then do it, then teach. And that's the order it has to be in. What does God want me to do? Figure that out, then do that in my life, and then go on and teach others. And Ezra was committed to directing his heart in the right way, beating a path to the Bible, fashioning himself according to what was written. And it's very similar to Daniel. We read of this, and just keep your finger here, especially young people, if you're thinking about, you know, what should I do with my life? Daniel chapter 10, it's a wonderful little passage. It comes actually later on in Daniel's life, but the principle is universal. In Daniel chapter 10, we have there, you know, and sometimes as a young person, we wonder, well, when does God hear my prayers? Well, this is exactly when. Verse 12, he said unto me, fear not, Daniel, from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard and I'm come for thy words. And the word there, chasten, literally means to pour oneself into the mold. So to find out what does God want me to do? and then conform myself to that. From that moment, Daniel's words were heard, and the angel Gabriel was dispatched. And if you ever wonder, young people, like, when is it that God will listen to me? Well, it's when we listen to him. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Invite him into your life by reading his words and wanting to find out what it is that he wants you to do in your life, because that's, of course, who's going to be in the kingdom. It's those people who have made that effort to have God as their guide and as their shield. The 24th Psalm reads this way. The question is asked in verse 3, Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh, or who shall stand in his holy place? Who's going to be there? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has made himself holy, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from Yahweh, righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob. So this is the generation of those that seek the face of the God of Jacob. And that word there is deresh again, to beat a path to. Those are the people that are going to be in the kingdom. Just like the invite of Cyrus at the beginning, whoever's willing-hearted, Go up to Jerusalem. God's not going to drag you kicking and screaming to the kingdom. I just don't want to be there. He wants people who want to be there, and he will help them on their journey and on their way. So back over to Nehemiah this time, because Nehemiah now joins the party that's going on in Jerusalem. He now joins that group there, the third Aliyah, the third wave of exiles returning. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it's now the 20th year. And he's in Shushan the palace during the reign of Artaxerxes I. There's around 444 BC. 
um, believed that Artaxerxes was the son of Ahasuerus, and here we find every generation, again, has their challenges. So the first wave of exiles who returned wanted to build the temple. Joshua and Zerubbabel were there. They had adversaries. The second wave of exoduses, exodus, including Ezra, had adversaries that they had to work against. And here we have a third wave, which includes Nehemiah, also has challenges and adversaries. And so we find in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3, um, there was, uh, they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are burned with fire. So that's the state of affairs that is reported to Nehemiah of his brethren over in Jerusalem. And he's still back in Babylon. He's under the, the, um, the, uh, the employ of the king here. And so he's there. Well, actually, he's in Shushan, the palace. So how does he deal with this? Well, verse 4, it came to pass when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here's Nehemiah picking up on Joshua's um, sort of, you know, uh, lead. If there's a problem, we pray about it. And so he says, verse 6, Let thine ear be attentive and thine eyes open that thou mayest hear the prayer of thy servant which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel, thy servants. And so he goes on to confess his sin and the sin of the people, a lovely prayer. We're not going to spend our time looking at that right now, but it's, it's one of those bucket list studies. If you have time, you know, and, well, make time and, and do a study of Nehemiah's prayer and contrast it with Daniel's prayer as well. Two very wonderful men and absolutely marvelous prayers. But in verse 8, he says there, Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, If ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad amongst the nations. But if you turn and keep my commandments and do them to return to me, though you were cast out to the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. And young people, you might find in your life, there are times when you find yourself scattered abroad. You've not chosen the right things. And you may have even been baptized, but you've not always chosen the right things and you find yourself in a time of trouble. The remedy is to turn to him, to keep his commandments, to do them, to pray to God, and he will return again your captivity. If we return to God, he will return to us. To keep, and that's that word shema, to observe, to retain, to pay heed to, to listen and to do, and to get on with the work. So like Zerubbabel, he returned, he separated himself, and they built. Ezra did the same thing, seeking, doing, and teaching. And here, Nehemiah engages in the same thing. And so he prays to God, verse 11, I beseech thee, let thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant, to the prayer of thy servants, and who desire to fear thy name and prosper, I pray thee, thy servant this day, grant him mercy in the sight of this man, because I was the king's cupbearer. So there's Nehemiah at a high, high level in the kingdom of, of Babylon in Shushan, or the Medes at this point in time. And so he goes into the king, and he offers that instant prayer. In chapter 2 and verse 4, as he goes in, he's, he's nervous. He doesn't quite know what to do. And so the king says to him, 
for what dost thou make thy request? And there's that shortest little prayer, I pray to the God of heaven. He doesn't tell us what he said, but he offered that very short prayer. They were instant in prayer. And so he gives this prayer and he explains the situation to the king. And of course, off he goes then. Um, and he comes in chapter 2 and verse 9, I came to the governors beyond the river and gave them the king's letter, which the king had sent captains and an army and horsemen with me, uh, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the, the servant and the Ammonite heard of it, it grieved them exceedingly that there was come a man to seek the welfare of the children of Israel. And so that's what Nehemiah's job was. That's what his goal was, to seek the welfare of his brethren. And isn't that interesting? What was it that Joseph said? I seek my brethren. And that's exactly what Nehemiah says here. And so there was grief of these adversaries. There always has been, there always will be. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. This plays out right the way through the lives of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. But God prospers their work. Again, if you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, I told them of the hand of my God which was upon me, also of the king's words that he'd spoken unto me, and they said... So he's encouraged them, said, look, here's the providence in my life. Here's how God has been with me. And the result of them hearing that is that they say, and it's not Nehemiah that says this. It's the people inspired by his message, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. And that has to be our focus, brothers and sisters, to rise up and build, no matter what opposition we may face. And there may be opposition from without. That is not a reason to stop doing what we're doing. And there will always be adversaries in the world, at work, and at home sometimes, and in our home ecclesias. And so here we find in verse 19, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Amorite, Ammonite, the Ammonite official, and Gershom the Arab heard of it. They laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Now, the world will often despise us. They want us to stop. They will make fun of us. They will try to come up with legal reasons why we shouldn't do what we do. But we've got to put our trust in our God, and he will give the increase. Now, the sad thing is there was also trouble in the ecclesia in verse 5 of chapter 3. There was all these people working away at building the wall. Next to them were the Tekoites. They repaired, but the nobles put not their necks to the work of, their, of, of Yahweh. So the ESV translates this, the nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. They were above it. They were above the leaflet distribution. They were above the work of God in whatever it might have been in that day. And it was a constant adversarial situation, both within and without. In chapter 4, if we just come over the page there, we find Nehemiah, uh, Sanballat, heard that we built the wall. He was angry. He was wroth. Great indignation and mocked the Jews and spake unto his brethren to the army of Samaria, and said, what do these feeble Jews? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish which are burned? 
Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up, he will break it down, break down their stone wall. Well, Tobiah, we've been to Jerusalem, and we've seen this wall is still there today, intact, some 2,500 years later. The Nehemiah Wall, if you go to the Ophel in Jerusalem, that's the part where the, 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 there's a great big sort of cascade of stones, and on the top of it was where David's palace was. You can actually see Nehemiah's wall still there today, still standing as a testimony to this. And so what did he do? How does Nehemiah handle this situation? Verse 4, he prays. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and turn their reproach upon their own head, and give them for a prey in the land of captivity. And so, you know, what comes next? Verse 8, they conspired all of them together to come to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. So what does Nehemiah do? Prays again. Verse 9. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. So the first line of defense is prayer. And then they get pragmatically about, well, how can we defend ourselves? But the work continued. But just notice that the first line of defense is prayer. And that's what it's got to be in our lives too, brothers and sisters and young people. Whatever troubles we are facing, the first thing we have to do is put our trust in our God. No matter what the situation, where the adversaries come from, whether they're out in the world, whether it's discouragement in the ecclesia, whether it's our personal struggle with sin, uh, our adversaries are simply internal. In that case, we pray first, put our trust in God, repent, seek, and do the work, and be holy, for he is holy. And so we we come to the end of this this story here in chapter 8, as we read together. In verse 1, all the people to gather themselves together again as one man. And that's what we come to do this morning. We return to the worship of our God, like they did, gathered together as one to remember our Lord Jesus Christ. They came into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake to Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which Yahweh had commanded to Israel. And Ezra brings out the the law and the congregation, both men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from morning to midday before all the men and women and those that could understand. And the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And that's what we do today. We come as one man before our God to read his holy book, the Torah, the law, that which we do every Sunday, every Sunday night, Wednesday perhaps, or whatever nights they may be. And we need to do this when our adversaries in our lives are at the full, not just when it's a time of peace, but read the word together so that we can seek and understand and repent and do. That's why we have Bible classes and evening programs. Let's not let the adversaries put us off our purpose of becoming a people prepared for the Lord. And so here we have Ezra. We read there in verse 8, he read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. It's not just going through the ritual. It's not just reading, but giving the sense to be prudent, to give insight, to be cunning in these things, to really understand them and to cause to understand 
to discern, to be intelligent, and to instruct. And so that's what they did as they came together here. And we read there in verse 9, Nehemiah, which was the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught, taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto Yahweh your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then they said unto them, Go your way, eat and f- eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to them that, for whom nothing is prepared. For today, this day, is holy unto, unto the Lord. And so he says, Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. And brothers and sisters, we are extremely privileged to come here today. And we need not mourn, because our Lord has gone before us and he has prepared the way. We might mourn our own nature and our own failing, but this is when we come to remember the Lord and his sacrifice and what he has done for us and the joy of Yahweh. Kevda is the word, the gladness, the rejoicing is to be our strength, our stronghold, our place of safety and our refuge. And that's why we come here today, to remember our Lord Jesus Christ and to joy. Just come, if you would, over to uh, Romans chapter 12 as we draw our thoughts to a close. Romans chapter 12 and at verse 12, we know this verse, but put it in context now of what we've been looking at. He says that we are to rejoice, be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation continuing instant in prayer. Now that summarizes Zerubbabel, Joshua, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Rejoicing in hope, but they still had tribulation through which they were patient. And how did they deal with it? They continued instant in prayer. And the word literally means to be devoted, to be constantly attending to, to give steadfast attention to, to show oneself courageous. They were courageous in prayer. And that summarizes these people's lives. And so as we come to the table before us now, our refuge and our strength, the source of our joy and gladness, we think of the words of Chronicles 16, glory and honor are in his presence. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to Yahweh, ye kindreds of people. Give to Yahweh glory and strength. Give unto Yahweh the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come ye before him. Worship Yahweh in the beauty of holiness. Fear before him all ye earth, for the world also shall be stable, that it be not moved.